Many's the parent of small children have often wished, presumably, for superpowers to help them cope. Claire Monley's new place, Super Bogger, takes us to the frazzled mind of Barry West, stay-at-home dad with, as he says himself, himself rather, three very loud kids. Barry and wife Laura are back living in the hometown of Ballyeen that uh, Barry never wanted to return to when one evening, after an encounter with, myster- with a mysterious fox, Barry suddenly starts exhibiting strange abilities, superpowers. Barry is played by Aaron Monaghan, real-life husband to Claire Monley, and, and, and I'm told, a non-frazzled father of one. <laughs> <laughs> lies, <laughs> lies. <laughs> um, good to see both uh, yourself, Claire, and Aaron in studio with me this evening. Evening, um, unfrazzled father of one, but are you an unfrazzled um, husband of person who has written play and who is now watching what you're doing to the beautiful words she wrote? No, I'm a very, very frazzled and terrified <laughs> actor trying to desperately learn the I think it's twelve thousand words, forty page script um, of Claire Monnelly's uh, roller coaster, nonstop, um, yeah, just in. Uh, nausea-inducing, very, very fast play. That's what I am, John. And 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 it's uh, Barry West. Uh, maybe tell us, you tell us, Claire, because he's he's your invention after all. Um, Aaron, Aaron, maybe realizing him. Uh, did you have Aaron in mind as you wrote? And <laughs> and what <laughs> he's about? very convenient <laughs> in that he can't really say no. But no, actually, uh, the original idea came from Aaron himself. He would mm. be a big comic book fan and superhero fan and always has been from when he was a kid so he had this notion of bringing a, the first Irish superhero to the stage and then he just fobbed the actual writing off on me <laughs> no but we've been developing it for a few years now mm-hmm. and um, I suppose in the meantime we've become parents ourselves so it's all become very very real and very uh, very Recognisable to us yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I do notice though that you've you've given Barry three children to, to deal with in his life. Oh yeah, yeah. I just wanted to up the stakes a little bit for Barry. He's he's um, he's having a bit of a he's having a bit of a moment. He hmm. he lost his job. He has to go back to the the hometown that he really never planned to return to, and um, he is kind of. Un- unwittingly become the stay at home dad to his three kids. So it wasn't never necessarily the plan. Hmm. Um. So yeah, he's on the on the evening that he meets that particular fox, he's he's at a bit of a crossroads, I suppose, in his life. So the fox is where the the superpower comes from. Must go must go seeking out one of those foxes <laughs> somewhere along the line. Um, Aaron Monaghan, you're from Cavan. Sean Rocks, I'm from Monaghan. Claire Monley, you're from Dublin. Whose idea was it to call it Super Bogger? I must. Um, I must admit that originally it was kind of a pet name that we had for the whole concept. A secret the, pet the, name that you were never going that to I was share. Ne- that we were never going to share. And then I think it came down to to applying for funding for it and we were so attached to it. that And it just it just is yeah. what the show is. So apologies. Yeah. To and it's very affectionate. It's a very affectionate turn of phrase. I think cl- because Claire's from Dublin, I think she thinks that anywhere outside of Dublin is the sticks and, you know, it's, it's a You're very... You're not helping. It's, <laughs> it's a very, very big difference. I've tried to explain this for a long time about the difference of being from the country, being from a small town and being from the city. But um, everybody who lives outside the Dublin, I think, according to Claire, is a bit of a bogger. I'm going to stop this now before there's a row that <laughs> has to be settled cancelled. when you get home. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose... It, it is definitely, as you read the script, there's no question about this. And I'll stay, stay with you on it, Aaron. It, whatever about uh, 
portrayals of small town. It's a kind of a love letter to the small town. He doesn't want to go back there. But, you know, he's not going back to the worst place at all, is he? No, I think uh, when he was growing up, it was like I think many people will identify with this. It was a place that he wanted to get the hell out of. Mm. And and then he went to the big smoke and he had a great time. And uh, literally everything changes on his 40th birthday. His world, he loses his job and his world comes crashing down. And he ends up back in the place where he's a lot of bad memories and uh, bad experiences. But actually, yeah, it is very much a love letter to small towns um, because the small town he encounters is very, very supportive of him. Mm. Everyone's kind of a little bit worried of him. Everyone's like looking after him. But because I suppose his attitude to it and his way of looking at life is a little bit tainted yeah. and a little bit negative, he, he thinks it's the worst place in the world. And it's kind of his journey to rediscovering um, his roots and his and his uh, the positivity in that really lovely supportive close knit because he was he was a big GAA star in his day yeah, yeah Ga uh, features uh, very heavily in this play and like you know it's very easy to slag off Ga things I don't really I've never played Ga and I've, it's always been a little bit alien to me but uh, yeah the, the idea that a whole community can be centred around the GAA club and mm. be such a, a, an amazing Amazing positive force, and I've seen that myself from the outside. Uh, but it, yeah, we very much kind of centered it around the fact that it is uh, a, a very supportive place. And then he, you know, over the course of the play, he kind of gets sucked back into that. We, we end up having to actually play a full Ga County final in the middle of the show, um, while also having a massive big superhero battle. And you're saying we here? You mean you? Well. <laughs> You know, it is a one man show, but it's also a bit of a, a cheat. So yes, it is it is me, but um I suppose Barry in the throughout the play he encounters lots of other characters mm. and um he literally hears voices, which is kind of representative of, you know, the barrage of constant voices he has. Right. And so it is me on the stage, but we've we've got this amazing array of Ireland's finest actors who've come in to record these amazing characters. So I'm, I'm up there with the with the cream of Irish talent and being very, very supported by that. All right. So you have all that support. However, Barry's um <laughs> I just I love this Declan Power guy. Um yeah. uh, who Can we he, tell him who de- who's playing Declan Power? Absolutely. Yeah, who's playing Declan Power? You could probably guess it's Rory Nolan. I was going to say <laughs> it's Rory Nolan. So Declan Power is the guy who's constantly and was constantly in competition with um yeah. with Barry West in and around uh, certainly the guy and the, and the football team but also in and around um, Barry's wife and the, the woman that he eventually married. Yes, indeed. He's, um, he's as well as your, your typical arch nemesis. Um, they would have uh, they would have been competing. They were on the same team in the GAB, but you know, that kind of, that healthy competition that exists between star players. And also, yeah, Declan would have had his eye on, on Laura when they, when she, she actually is a blow in from Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> but when she arrives in the scene when they're when they're 15 they they both kind of compete for her affections but obviously Barry Barry wins out on that one so there might be a bit of residual resentment but then it is in fact Declan Power who now runs the local um the local factory that that recruits Laura to come back and gives her this yeah. kind of unturndownable job back in the town and so it's kind of Declan that drags Barry back to this place that he'd really rather not be. It's also Declan's factory that makes the fox radioactive that gives <laughs> Barry his superpowers. So everything's centred around this yeah. larger than life supervillain as as Barry calls him who may have superpowers himself. We don't know. 
I'm wondering, were you writing this as you were playing jocks or opposite, uh, <laughs> opposite Rory Knowles, Captain Boyle, in the recent The Big OKC trilogy, obviously, that you were involved in, which was a phenomenally big cast. OK, you've got the voices here, but you had everybody on stage with you there. Here you are just by yourself. Yeah, but I, I, and, and I don't mind saying, like, the idea of doing a one-man show, it's, it's, I've never done it, and it's, it's terrifying to me. So, I, you know, I really, I'm really glad that we have those people like Cathy Belton and you know, Manus Halligan, Seamus O'Rourke, Claire Bar- Barrett, Brian Burroughs, like uh, Claire herself makes an appearance mm. as Laura as well. And when um, you say appearance, you mean a vocal appearance. A vocal yeah. appearance and quite a present one. They're quite yeah. consistent uh, throughout the play. But um, no, it's, it's it's very supportive. But I, I did think, you know, we, we finished up with the O'Caseys, which was an amazing experience a couple of weeks ago. And I thought I might get a little bit of a break from Rory Nolan, but no, <laughs> he's... He's just there, always, uh, always in front of me. I won't pursue the autobiographical elements in and around any of that, but I will <laughs> pursue, pursue autobiographical elements in and around um, the delivery of one of the babies. Oh yes, um, yeah. Well, well, our our little girl arrived uh, a month early, and Erin was due on stage that evening. In, afternoon. Afternoon in the MLT, they were doing um, they were doing other O'Casey plays. Um, and so he had to, he was summoned and there were plays cancelled and I was under great strain to definitely have a baby because I think I would have been in great trouble had had there not been one, but she was mm. in a bit of a hurry. So, yeah, but he made it. He made yeah. it in time. I have to say, like, Druid were incredibly supportive and they were like, family comes first, hit the hit the motorway on the road to Dublin. And there's a, a very, very fast paced speech in the play that is literally kind of verbatim my experience of being on that road and he's trying to get up mm. to uh, to to make the birth of the baby and um, I don't know whether he makes it on time but you'll have to come and see. <laughs> no, of course you're not going to tell me whether he makes it on time <laughs> or not. Um, they, you two have worked before not, I, I don't think not in this particular where Aaron where you were the actor realising Claire's work it's more as director writer. Yes, so Claire's first play was Charlie's Eclepto, which uh, Claire also performed in, and that was a, a monologue. It was a one one woman show, and I directed that. And we, I think, we kind of considered this as like the brother play or the sister play to that, right. because it's another character who's under a huge amount of strain, and it's very very fast paced and meets lots of characters, and uh, it's all very fast and dramatic and funny and. Um, if it's okay to say it in front of you, Claire. Claire was phenomenal in that part. But I do know that to deliver a a Claire Monley play, you have to put yourself into a very, very difficult place. You have to go through what the character goes through. And even just the trauma of being on your own on stage and learning that amount of words that come out at that pace. And I, you know, I think we, we, we wanted the challenge of reversing the roles and we've done that. But I would nearly say that this is Claire's revenge on me for that and it very much feels <laughs> But it, interestingly enough when you were talking about that or when Aaron was talking about that Claire he talked about the, the challenge of being in a Claire Monolly play like the challenge of being in whatever playwright's name you want to use play do you ha- really have to put husband-wife relationship to the one side and become playwright actor or playwright director when you get into the rehearsal room? I actually think that that being husband and wife it really is our strength when it comes to working together. Like we have this incredible shorthand. Uh, Aaron understands my work like like nobody else, and he is uh, as invested in in the success of mm. the work as I am as well. There's mm. never any question about that. So uh, the only thing that we have to do in the room with other with other creatives is 
is watch ourselves because <laughs> the way that we communicate with each other it's, can it's, come across as yeah. how just abrupt. It's, it's, it's very short and abrupt. Like, you know, if I'm if I'm saying, oh, I think that moment, Claire, be like, just tell me what it is and, and cut it. And it's, also, we have a small child, so we don't have time. <laughs> time is not on our side. And then, you know, our, our wonderful director, Emily Foran, is kind of coming into this relationship mm. and she's kind of having to negotiate that, as has our other collaborators like Susie Cummins and you can see them sometimes in the corner kind of going mommy daddy please stop fighting <laughs> and it's not it's just like I think this yeah you're right no it shouldn't be and it's 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 very quick but it's very easy and it's all about the work um, the, the, the name of the town being Ballyeen and obviously there's a nearby town a nearby town of Ballymore you couldn't really call your town Ballybeg or Bally, Ballybeg they'd be too it'd be too close to Brian Freel really but Ballyeen yeah. is there a little nod towards Freel in that in I think I, like I mean I've I've grown up watching and reading and studying all of all of those the Irish canon of playwrights Freeland Tom Murphy and Marina Carr and everything mm. and I think in everything that you write what you love and what you've read and what you've grown up watching and reading is going to arrive there whether it's purposeful or not so it wasn't a, a purposeful nod to Freel but I think I mean, you'd love to think that the plays would end up in the in the canon as well. And th- there's a little Easter egg for anybody who's a superhero hero fan in that name. Ballyeen literally mil- means small town. And mm. that came from the idea of Smallville being Superman's hometown. Um, oh, Barry West being see. an amalgamation of a couple of different superhero characters. So there's anybody who's a superhero fan. Mike. Are you touting for a superhero casting in Marvel or something like that? I, I don't know if I'm over the hill, but if anybody wants to come and see it and <laughs> see me in spandex, no problem. Are you in spandex? You'll have to come and see. Ah, <laughs> I thought you'd slipped it in by accident. Listen, great to, to see both of you um, and best of success. It's not surprisingly, it is touring around. It's perfect for that, given that it's the one man show and it is all about small towns. Mm-hmm. Could be any part of Ireland, I suppose, in some ways, couldn't it? Super Bogger tours to the Town Hall Cavern. It's in Roscommon Arts Centre. It's a backstage theatre in Longford, Dritted Arts Centre, Drogheda and the McLally Theatre in Galway. And all of that happening between the 22nd of November and the 4th of December just in time to get Santa Claus sorted I would have thought after all of that then further details on livingdread.ie Tulka is an annual visual arts festival that uses galleries and unusual venues all over Galway City to present works of art based on a particular theme each year. This year, the theme is Honey, Milk and Salt in a Seashell Before Sunrise. Frank Wasser has been to Tulka and joins me now. I have to say, Frank, or, uh, Frank if, if, if a, a commissioner came to me with this as a theme, Honey, Milk and Salt in a Seashell Before Sunrise, I think... What on earth are they talking about? You might explain that side of the theme to us first of all. Yeah, so it's a hi Sean, it's a it's a it's a mouthful to begin with, um, but it's taken from um an old uh, folk cure book written by Jane Wilde, that's the mother of Oscar Wilde. Oh. And the title was selected by um Erlene Fersh, who is the curator of the festival this year. Um, and she kind of draws on lots of different sources to, to kind of build the curatorial framework of, of the festival. Um, but the reason why she was sort of a, attracted to this this particular sort of idea of um, a, a cure 
was that this was originally mapped out by, by Jane Wilde, a cure for what would have been called madness at the time. So in terms of the festival itself being a kind of an exploration of the relationship between disability and landscape and the kind of legacies of, of these things, um, Irla felt that this would be a sort of a, a softer, a gentle way into understanding the relationship between, between bodies and, and the landscape. Well, it certainly gives it a, a, a very different way of looking at perhaps what might be quite difficult subjects in some ways because it has it has a wonderful kind mm-hmm. of the imagery of honey, milk and salt in the seashell before sunrise has a wonderful calmness and gentle quality to it. But just before we get into the specifics of how artists have reacted to that, Tolka works totally on the basis of commissioning chosen artists. That's right. So there's commissioned works and Tulka, it's celebrating its 21st year this year. It's an annual arts festival originally initiated by um, Galway Arts Centre. Now it's, it's, it's independent. Um, there's a, an invited curator and then it's a, it's a mixture of commissioned works and actually there's an open call. Oh, there well. is an open call as well. Um, there is, yeah, yeah. So there's artists who are selected from, from the open call and a mixture of artists who um, commissioned. And um, this year there are 15 um, contributing artists um, um, and collectives. Mm. There's also a, a very beautiful uh, publication that's that's being launched alongside the festival and a, and a very comprehensive um, series of events and programmes also curated by Ireland. And important to say that it's, it's in all kinds of venues and all kinds of locations around Galway City. Right across the city from um, the old Dole office on St. Augustine Street, which is the kind of the main Tulka gallery to um, the St. Bridget's Hospital to the Gal- Galway Arts Centre itself. And all quite kind of, um, you know, despite the fact that it's across many different venues, um, it's accessible in more ways than one. You can, it's quite possible to see a lot in one day. Um, although the programme does run till to the 19th yeah. of November. OK, let's talk about some of the specifics of, of highlights that you s- saw in your in your trip around the, the, the exhibition. Uh, Holly Marie Parnell, first of all, who is she and where is she exhibiting? So Holly, Parnell, uh, Holly Marie Parnell is um, an Irish-Canadian artist and, and she's based at the moment between Wexford and Glasgow. Um, and this is... This is Holly's first um, single channel uh, video or film. So that's a that's a film that's not split across various screens. A lot right. of Holly's practice over the last few years would have involved performance, for example. Um, and her work is situated in the Tulka Gallery. That's the old Dole office on, on St. Augustine Street. Um, and it's a work uh, which is called Cabbage. Um, and it's a moving image work in collaboration with her brother, David Parnell, and her mother, June Parnell. Uh, the artist's family. Um, and in the film, Parnell focuses on on the lived experience of her brother, David Parnell, um, honing in on his texts, which are crafted with the aid of um, eye-tracking tra- eye technology. Um, uh, David is, is non-mobile. And it's a piece which weaves together a sort of personal accounts from, from Holly, Holly's mother, uh, medical accounts from when um, David was was younger, um, and 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 kind of recollections mm. and contemplations on a sort of a spectrum of subjects, um, and they range on you know really at the heart of the piece is a sort of a very um, um, moving reflection on the kind of violence of bureaucracy 
Um, there's one scene in the film where June um, Parnell is looking at a form that she's filling in um, for um, David's care needs and all of these quite kind of cold, sterile questions. She sort of responds to them by saying, well, you know, his care needs might be, you know, that he needs to go out and, and look at the stars in the middle of the night, you know. So it's a it's a very moving yeah. uh, piece on, on the kind of violence of of bureaucracy in, in many respects. That's a, an extraordinary phrase too, the violence of bureaucracy. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying in terms of that response to the question mm. um, re- regarding David's, par- or David's care needs. Also at the Tolka Gallery is Bridget O'Gorman. This is a sculptural installation that Bridget O'Gorman is giving us. These are incredible works. Yeah, these are these are some of the first works that you'll that you'll see as you enter the space, and they're made from jasmineite, um, um, and they're, they're they're sculptures that take the form of they look like sort of tubes that are being suspended by um, supports, um, or these sort of supports that you might expect to kind of support a body moving from a bedside to a table, for example. So is jasmineite um, a kind of a, is it a, is it a, a steel-like looking type of structure or type of metal? So jasmineite is a material that um, actually to look at might, might remind you more of something like plaster. It's something right. that's quite durable. Mm. Um, it, it's something that you mix yourself. Maybe you can mix it in the studio. Um, but it's quite um, it's it, it's an unusual material in the sense that like it's delicate, um, but it's quite durable as well. So you know yeah. there are public artworks, for example, made made from jasmineite. So um, it's the form of these sculptures, these long tubes held by supports that that creates almost in a way like any good minimalism. It creates the it creates an awareness of your body in the space, it creates an awareness of your body's relationship to to the architecture and this is a kind of a piece that you're you're in a way it kind of feels like a sort of um um an in, a very very fitting introduction to this particular gallery and, and in fact, I, I see that Bridget O'Gorman has recently been dealing with a, a, a spinal injury. And does that feed in in any way to what she's doing in, with these installations? You said that they do look like almost as if they're supports that you might use to get from one place to the other if you had mobility issues. Yeah, I think a lot of the artists in the show are, are responding to uh, this idea of you know mm. making connections between um, uh, the landscape and disability and architecture through through their own lived experience. I think that's important to say, and you know that that's also reflected in the way that the exhibition is is curated. So, for example, in that same gallery, um, there are works which you know standard hanging of a, a wall based work might be 150 centimeters off the ground, and the works um, in that hang not just there but also in the Galway Art Centre are hung 110 centimeters from the ground. So, so they're, they're more accessible. Um, uh, maybe maybe you give us two highlights just to finish up. Two further highlights to to finish up on uh, from from what you've seen, because I know your your feeling on it, Frank, was that despite the the breadth of material and the, the amount of material that's out there, that you actually got to see quite a lot. So maybe just choose two further highlights uh, for to finish up for us. Yeah, sure. So I think an absolute highlight would be Sarah Brown's work, uh, Galway Art, uh, Galway Art Centre, and I know mm. that uh, Sarah Brown and Erler are actually collaborating on a film. Um, in in the next few months, but um, Sarah Brown has basically brought together a collaborative film project um, with autistic young people living in in, in North mm. County Dublin, and the name of the film um, and the materials connected to the film at Galway Art Centre is Echo Bones, and that title is borrowed from an unfinished play by by Samuel Beckett, 
Um, and the dialogue within the film um, echoes kind of the, the, the sort of fragmented, yeah. often broken, witty delivery of lines in the Becker plane. Uh, and essentially what Sarah Brown is interested in sort of drawing connection to is, on the one hand, this type of delivery is sort of valued within an art context, but also the other hand, it's sort of yeah. um, often misunderstood or undermined yeah. in, in an everyday sort of setting and situation. Absolutely. And that's filmed, you know, um, um, it's um, one, there's one, a lot one, of humour in that yeah. work too. Yeah, one further, one further brief highlight then, and and we leave it at that so, for this evening, Frank. I, I think a real highlight would also be Jamila Prowse at, at the main Tolka Gallery, um, and she's brought together a piece called Crip Quilts, um, which is on the the situated on the floor in the middle of the gallery, and it's a patchwork, um, which has been um, made uh, in collaboration with support from uh, right. Diva Obson. Um, and again, it's it's a quilt which is hand-stitched by prose, describing through text and images the experience of many disabled artists' lived experiences. Um, and it's a piece that um, was made by collecting oral histories taken from the, the National Disability uh, Art Collection and new oral histories as well. Um, yeah. And I suppose something I didn't mention is there's a lot of humour in the work as well, a patch in the middle of, of, of that piece. Yeah. I slept through Freeze Week and... <laughs> um, you know, there's a lightness yeah. to many of these works as well. That's, well, that's it's obviously welcome. picking up on a, the, what that wonderful theme, honey, milk and salt in a seashell before sunrise has a certain amount of innate humour in it as well. Frank, thanks so much for uh, guiding us through that. That's Frank Wasser. The Tolka Festival of Visual Arts runs in various venues in Galway City from the 3rd through until the 19th of November. Tolka.ie for full details. And so to our album reviews on this Friday evening, Dave Hanratty and Zara Hederman have been listening to three new albums, casting a backward year as well over a classic folk artist, John Francis Flynn's second album, Look Over the Wall, um, See the Sky, follows uh, his acclaimed solo debut in 2021, I Would Not Live Always, TikTok sensation Pink Pantheress, who had millions of followers lip-syncing to her songs, has released her first album, Heaven Knows, and fans of Belfast musician David Holmes' Electronica will welcome his new album, Blind on a Galloping Horse. Let's start with John Francis Flynn. Uh, Look over the wall and see the sky, as I say, is the title full of old Irish folk songs given the Flynn treatment of creaking violins, drone guitars and drums. This is definitely the most upbeat uh, track, I would say, on the record we're going to listen to. Mole in the Ground. If I was a mole, I'd tear the mountain down. There we go. 
I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground from John Francis Flynn and his new album Look Over the Wall See the Sky and I was terribly aware even as I uh, chose that record to play at the beginning of this item it is not at all representative of what's going on on the on the album Zara No it's not it's one of the more kind of developed and I guess more kind of radio friendly song as you hear there's that kind of really captivating guitar motif throughout it whereas elsewhere you know as you were saying there there's that John Flynn kind of magic where he uses quite a lot of like tape manipulations and pedal effects and actually reading about this um, album he said and I thought this was very effective in kind of bringing a new meaning to some of the songs so he said that like some of the sounds in this album are of the lives of the characters being torn apart and that's in particular with songs like The Lag Song um, and then later on in Willie Crotty as well because there is quite a spaciousness to a lot of the songs some of them as well are quite eerie they're very haunting Um, sometimes he has like a double bass or a snarling harmonica in there that's so scary but so captivating to listen to there there can be quite a a, a kind of eerie soundtrack feel to some of the way the songs are set up Zara mentioning there the song Willie Crotty which is nearly seven minutes long there's two minutes before the beat kind of kicks in and there's another half a minute before the lyrics kick in and that's more typical of the of the songs on the record really that real slow exploration of these old old ballads Dave yeah it's an album that definitely demands some patience and attention from the listener and you know I mean one of the albums that we're going to talk about later on today is is much more attuned to the the young modern generation where there's no attention span so I found that quite interesting with this one I will say I was immediately captivated by this though from the very opening kind of yeah. exhales of him and he is John Francis Finn is like you know he's kind of a gentle giant as some people have described him he stands you know six foot seven and he's he's got this incredible heft to his presence alone and just him doing spoken word will stop you in your tracks but as Zara points out there's a lot of experimentation on this record there's a lot of places that it goes it doesn't you know it gives you traditional balladry but then it kind of takes Mm. that messes up the rule book and goes somewhere different with it and I found myself this week as well tuning into this album and very much you know I'm a multitasker I will like you know I'll listen to a podcast while playing a video game or something but with this I had had to to sit down and listen (laughs) had to block out everything else and I will say it's also kind of a perfect album for the time of the year that we're in because it's getting dark at five o'clock and this is almost inviting you in into there, into that kind of eeriness that Zara mentions, and yeah. he's a he's a very compelling uh, orator, I think. Yeah, and I never knew that the zoological gardens could be quite this eerie. We went out there by Castle Knock, says she to me. She'll be caught on the lock. Then I knew she was one of the rare old stock from outside the zoological garden. See what I mean? I mean, it starts off, you know, just a, a, an a cappella verse, mm. Zoological Gardens, yeah, slightly mm. slower delivery than we might expect. Then those electronics start to kick in and you're brought to a whole new place with this song. This really well-known song, Zara. Yeah, the Dominic Bean song, absolutely. And when we hear those uh, electronic motifs come in, to me that kind of sounds like the song or the world around him kind of crumbling. And that, again, was something that I found quite fascinating. And it's something I think that's very exciting about John Francis Flynn and his prominence at the moment. We see UK and US press getting very excited about him and also about this album he talked about how he was very tired of there being this kind of paddywhackery about outsiders illusions of Ireland you know the idyllic kind of green rolling hills and our culture and all of that but actually when he was working on this album 
he was, you know, very much inspired by the song Mole in the Ground, where, you know, our country actually in when we're living in it, we're seeing how our government was more than willing to let, you know, vulture funds in, letting tech companies come in to dismantle our cultural heritage. And in particular, the cobblestone, which is somewhere that John Francis Flynn played quite a lot in in his formative years talking about actually what's going on here, how this country was trying to, you know, get rid, not get rid of, but not really considering the importance and the vitality of our culture. And I think as well, him taking these old songs is also so inspiring yeah, and, and exciting. It, and it's often dismissed, this type of music, as doom folk. It's a mm. term I hate because, <laughs> you know, it's, kind of, it's, it's trying to say, oh, you don't want to be listening to that. It's dark and it's going to, you're going to wreck your head. But what it does, as we saw in Zoological Gardens, it's very much what Lancome does, and he's obviously associated with Lancome, uh, people like Lisa O'Neill. They give us these ancient songs, but there's a modern, there's a contemporary twist in them that brings them somewhere else, Dave. Yeah, and that Doom Folk thing, uh, the Doom Folk thing is interesting because that to me is actually a positive affirmation because I love that kind of challenging music, I guess. And a matter of fact, there's a song on here called Within a Mile of Dublin, which kind of plays for about three minutes in a very familiar conventional fashion. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, it's like, when did, when did Godspeed you Black Emperor take over, you know, and you mentioned Lancome very much in yeah. the conversation as well. It's interesting because we're in this moment now of like, you know, we've been having this conversation now for about 10 years about the, the folk and the trad revival. And of course, the purists will say that it never really went away, it just kind of, you know, built a new chapter for itself. And maybe more people are paying attention from a mainstream perspective. But my take on this and what John Francis Flynn is doing is that it's not good enough to just be good enough. You have to be very, very good. And that's what he's doing. He's challenging yeah. those norms. And as Zara mentions, you know, kind of that outsider thing, because he has gotten a lot of love from the UK and the US and I think it's not patronising I think they recognise that actually this man is a terrific artist who represents modern Ireland but he's doing it in a way that he throws back to and then tears up that kind of experimentation of the old Stars, Dave It's an easy four out of five for me I think An it's easy four out of five Yeah, compelling, Dave. terrific, great And what do you think, Zara? I'm going four and a half because as I said this just gets me so excited and if he's bringing this music to a new generation that can't be a bad thing Yeah, and sit down and listen you, you won't be able to walk around the kitchen while you're, while you're attempting to listen you'll just have to stop Let us move on then um, to album number two this evening Pink Pantheress Heaven Knows you couldn't be in a more different place, <laughs> Dave, uh, than than the John Francis Flynn world, than the Pink Pantheress world. Who is she? Uh, well, listen, he may have his day on TikTok, who knows? But for now, that is the realm of Pink Pantheress. Uh, she's a 22-year-old UK artist who won the BBC's coveted Sound of 2022 poll. She's been blowing up on the internet. The the people, the, the young kids think that she's great. And she's dealing in this kind of realm of R&B mixed with hyper-pop. Mm. And I, I, the word hyper is quite literal because on this album, most of the songs has run for under three minutes which you know brevity is the soul of wit she is very witty she's very inventive and there's a lot of hype yeah. around her Well I'm glad that you said that you know that because this idea that oh it's only just for the young kids she is full of brevity which is a good thing she is full of wit and there is a lot of stuff kind of going on and she crams a lot to be fair to her into songs of under of under three minutes I'm in front of you with my makeup
we go. Another life from Pink Panther S. Uh, and I was saying <laughs> as we were listening to that, Sarah, I mean, it kind of starts off with this kind of horror Bela Lugosi type <laughs> of organ playing in the background. And then in comes the, the, the whatever, drum the, bass, the drum and bass. Yeah. And off we go yeah. into what sounds like a standard pop song but you're saying there's more going on behind it than that Yeah there is and I think something you said on your intro she crams a lot into it and for me that was kind of a bit of an issue so as you heard there we heard the drum and bass she's doing this thing that she's coined new nostalgia which is bringing in a lot of kind of early 2000s kind of garage as well influences a lot of pop influences Mm. and that can kind of mask you know some of the things she's talking about because I found that there in my listening she's talking about death and dying and you know that quite a lot against these very bright pop songs Mm. and actually interestingly enough and another song that has like a harp like motif which kind of like the organ it strikes you like oh what's this Um, and it's actually kind of influenced by Ophelia Shakespeare's Ophelia and you know the drowning and that so there is a mix but you do have to listen to it quite a lot too Yeah well let's let's have a listen to a little bit of that Ophelia with this harp at the beginning There we go, Pink Pantheress and Ophelia. And this is from her album, Heaven Knows. Two and a half minutes that song comes in at. Um, we, I suppose we had probably about a half a minute, for 45 seconds or a minute left on it there. Does she pack a punch into that two and a half minutes? Sarah touching on it and kind of half suggesting maybe. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, no, I think she does. I love the transitions and the changes and the step ups. I mean, it reminds me of an album that we reviewed on here a few months ago, which was With a Hammer by Yeji. And that, that kind of, you know, very aggressive and abrasive in a way, but also quite soothing thing that mm. she has gone on, which I like. I'm a sucker for it. Like, I really enjoy when, when, when the song takes you those places. And I love as well that these songs are kind of in a rush because, like I say, it's a nice contrast to the John Francis Finn album. I mean, like, I'd love to see them on the same bill together. It'll never happen, <laughs> but it'd be quite interesting. And yeah. I, I, th- I think there's a place for this. I mean, again, like, I mean, I, I don't mean to punch yeah. down on younger people having a lack of attention span. I'm the same. I think, like, we, we have so much media and information that I really appreciate a very tightly consumed and put together pop album. 2.6 million followers on TikTok. Uh, videos and set her songs have accumulated 2.6 billion views. And mm. uh, does this add up to an album, or is it, in fact, a series of songs that people will just listen listen to one of them and move on. I yeah, I think so. That's for me anyway. I mean, going between this album and her 2021 mixtape uh, to hell with it, which was 18 minutes long and you had songs that were like a minute long or 2 minutes long. I f- I got myself quite frustrated with this album sometimes because she has some very interesting ideas and transitions and arrangements and I just feel that she goes away before she can really fulfill something, I think. Like a song uh, Bury Me with Kalela that's a really strong song in it but it's only about two minutes and I like countless times kept wanting a little bit more a verse and a chorus more Um, so I do hope that with the next one maybe all of the songs will be three to four minutes there'll be more development So what does that mean in terms of stars Zara? For me it was a three because it just wasn't developed enough for me 
All right. And what are you saying overall on this one, Dave? It's a four for me because I love that nostalgia thing that Zara is talking about because I love the fact that these are kind of unfinished sketches in some regards. It leaves you wanting more. It feels like kind of like a half-remembered dream or something. I think there is a place for that in pop music. It does speak to contemporary sounds. I could see why it wouldn't be for everybody, but I really, really liked it. All right. And it was a four, you said, wasn't it? Four out of five. Four, a solid four then for Pink Pantheress. And heaven knows. Finally, then, we're on to David Holmes and Blind on a Galloping Horse. Who are we talking about when we talk about David Holmes and what style of music are we talking about essentially here, uh, Zara? So we're talking about legendary uh, Belfast producer, musician and arranger who has done a lot in his solo career. He was very instrumental in bringing... um, Acid House and rave culture to Belfast in his early years. Um, he's also composed over 30 soundtracks working with people like Steven Soderbergh and Steve McQueen. And actually most recently he was working with Sinead O'Connor um, producing what is now uh, her final album which I think is due to come out next year. And actually he celebrates her in one of the songs on this album, um, Necessary Genius where he cites several dreamers, believers, radicals and misfits and in that song he talks about Samuel Beckett, Angela Davis, Sinead O'Connor and refugees which uh, is crucial in this. Well, let's have a listen to how he does that. There we go. Necessary genius from David Holmes uh, and that from his new album, Blind on a Galloping Horse. The mention of Sinead O'Connor, I was asking you both as we were listening there, it's at the very end of the track, Dave. Yeah, it's the exclamation point for it. And it is, of course, uh, an incredibly important thing and, you know, devastating in its way to hear her invoked Mm. like this, given that she has passed away. Um, Is it a fitting tribute, though? I don't know. I mean, this album has billed itself as a, quote, an interrogation of the last decade, time spent watching a decaying frame Britain visibly buckling in real time while tending to Holmes' own own battles with mental health. Now, you can can stretch that to more international consciousness. It is very much a, you know, two fingers up the Tories in the UK type thing, but it does speak to the world at large. I mean, there's a track on here called When People Are Occupied, Resistance Is Justified. Could you think of a more timely thing, really? Um, And it has, you know, lines from people from all over the world. There are Afghan and Ukrainian refugees who've settled in Belfast. You hear from a Palestinian ambulance driver. There are French and Irish voices. But the sentiment is there, the spirit is there, the punk ethos is there. But I didn't think that the music backed it up at all. I thought that the arrangements were very, very tame. They felt very, very tied to a time that feels outdated to me. And I thought that Raven Violet, the vocalist on this one, who's on almost every track, I didn't think that the presence was strong enough at all. What about, um, uh, there's, a, there's a track that I'm going to play now, Zara, I Laugh Myself uh, to Sleep. Uh, this is kind of in that grungy, post-punk type of feel of it, hasn't, doesn't it have that? Yeah, it reminded me weirdly of like Billy Idol's kind of like 80s rock kind of mm. music. And it's um, it's his friend, Andrew Weatherall, who as well passed away, away in 2020. So again, another celebration. Um, and I think... A lot of, you know, there's a great mixture on this album, I think. Um, Sorry, sorry. I'll I'll come back to you. Let's let's have a listen to a little bit of A Laugh Myself to Sleep and I'll come back to you. So 
there we go. Just wanted to get a sense of that sort of the kind of that post-punky, grungy mm. feel. It's and it's very different from the first track that we heard. And you were saying there's a lot of variety across the album. Yeah, I think that song in particular kind of stands out as a bit more of a. It's very much its own thing, and I think that that is as well because it's very much from Andrew Weatherall's kind of yeah. what he hadn't gotten a chance to put out himself. And um, but what I was going to say was with this album, like it's 14 tracks, it's over an hour long, um, and I think you know with the political motivation of it, I actually found this initially quite an intimidating album to go into because of all of that going into it but I found it actually very um, inspiring and motivating as well right. even because you know some of the things he's saying are quite simplistically put but they are effective effective stars yeah. um, I'm going to go for three and a half three and a half overall for you Dave does this work um, across the it's a 10 tracks or 11 tracks is it of the big long instrumentals in there as well it should be said yeah and like the opening track is 10 and a half minutes and that's okay you know I'm all mm. for a long song if it works but I just felt that the, the spirit is admirable I thought the construction was weak it felt like an album that escaped from the early 2010 in terms of its style and David Holmes has been at the forefront of so many cutting edge scenes over the years his CV is unbelievable he is something of a living legend I expected more from him on this and I hope that the Shane O'Connor album to come will actually back that up Alright stars from you then It's a two and a half Two and a half so a little bit disappointed it sounds like on that particular one from you Dave David Holmes Blind, blind on a Galloping Horse Pink Panthers uh, Heaven Knows and John Francis Flynn Look Over the Wall See the Sky were the three albums that Dave Hanratty and Zara Hedeman were speaking to me about on this Friday